1: We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. We pay our respect to Elders past and present, and the Aboriginal Elders of other communities who may be listening today.
3: Well, welcome to our uh, after show, and we are again joined by Dr George. Dr George, thanks so much for hanging around and chatting with us. How exciting. I've never been invited to an after show. I know. Yeah. I hope obviously we're recording remotely. I hope you are naked. <laughs> Maybe. This is sort of our, our place. place I am, so. <laughs> our place, R-rated show.
2: I am wearing a very sexily draped airline blanket though. Oh, so. yeah.
3: oh that'll do. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so Dr George, we have a whole lot of uh, questions that have been sent in by listeners. Uh, we're of course keeping all the questions anonymous today. Um, so we're going to start with a COVID-related listener question. What do your thoughts on sex on premises venues opening up in Sydney Uh, as much as I love a good old trip to a gay sauna I think it's a bit early for this how did this slip through the cracks when nightclubs aren't legally allowed to open
2: I look I honestly if you can socially distance in a sauna then let me know how that is physically possible (laughs) it'd be a boring trip Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it is the exact opposite of social distancing right like think about a steam room is what Maybe ten square meters, yeah. And on a Sunday at one of my favorite places, you could easily fit thirty to forty people in that ten square meters. And I trust you that yeah. fluids will be exchanged. Oh, yeah.
3: So, <laughs> yes,
2: kissing is a wonderful way to transmit COVID. And we are, we you know, we know that the virus is shed through feces as well. So anal sex, again, another way that it could be transmitted. Rimming, probably not easily. Like you'd have to be a pretty enthusiastic rimmer, but the chances there. Oh, I am. The chances yeah. there. <laughs>
3: well, I've got the trophy. To...
2: <laughs> Good for you. But you know, and like we had the the um, New York Health Department. Akon and as well as Thorn Harbour Health, who he made suggestions about, you know, having sex in positions where you're not facing each other, glory hole sex. And trust me, I if I could find a good queer carpenter, please hit me up. <laughs> um, I'd love a I'd love a good glory hole because like there may be some data that semen, the, the evidence isn't strong that semen would have COVID expressed through it, but yeah. the problem with penises is that guys go to the toilet all day and usually they use their hand to take their penis out yeah, yeah. and nobody washes their hands before they pee. They wash afterwards.
3: After they pee. Oh. So
2: if you're going to have COVID on your hands then you're going to have it on your dick oh. and if you put it in your mouth, you're going to have an infection. Oh, so gosh,
3: yeah. about I thought about that. Okay.
2: So yeah. look, I, I, I think the optics of opening up a, a sauna is very poor form at this time. And yeah. i hope my house doesn't get firebombed by a local (laughs) Tropicana club, but
4: it's just the nature of the biz. Alrighty. So the next question asks, um, I suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder and the symptoms that affect me the most is intrusive thoughts. My most reoccurring intrusive thought is a fear that I've lost my sexuality and I am now attracted to women. I know that thought is false and only exists in my mind but when i go through periods of being affected by it which can last months i completely lose my attraction to other men and find it quite distressing as my sexuality is an integral part of my identity and i've fought so much for it so my question is when i go through these periods of not being attracted to other men should i still identify as being gay
2: Wow, there's there's a Mm. lot to unpack in that question, isn't there? The first thing I would say is, is your OCD being well treated? Is Mm. it effectively treated? Because there are a number of different treatments for OCD, and that's both using medications, but also using CBT and and other talk therapies and ways of looking at the thought processes. Mm. But I think certainly when people uh, are under stress and people are, uh mood is disturbed, the desire for sex kind of goes down. Yeah. Like I, I usually an extremely horny person, but I have to say that over the past two to three months, my level of horn has gone right down, mm. which isn't necessarily a bad thing because I don't want to be putting myself or my patients at risk by having sex. So I, I think what we're dealing with here, and one of the things about OCD is that it is on the spectrum of anxiety, Mm -hmm. is that those thought processes aren't necessarily clear, and that they're not based in reality. Certainly in my psychotic patients, when I was working in psychiatry, I would often talk about are you able to differentiate between whether the voice is a real voice or a false voice? And, you know, one of the guys would stick his fingers in his ears and if he could still hear the voice, even if his fingers were in his ears, that way he knew it was his psychosis speaking and he was able to distance himself a little bit from it. Okay. But maybe whilst he's not feeling sexual, maybe he could channel his his anxieties and his thoughts and his worries towards something that, is distracting whilst also extremely homosexual. Mm. May I recommend drawing, erotic drawing. He could start his own erotic cartoon. Oh, my God. There's a wonderful um, embroidery friend of mine who does the most intricate embroidered fisting drawings. Oh, I so, that. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, it's, it's quite remarkable. Ginger Stitch, check him out. Ginger um, Stitch, all
4: right.
2: Ginger Stitched. Yeah, maybe instead of, if you're not feeling sexual, are there other things that you could do that incorporate Mm. your sexuality that don't necessarily involve sex?
3: Well, our next one sort of follows on a little bit from this. It reads, Dr. George, my interest in sex has bottomed out, no pun intended, uh, over several years. I've had hormone therapy to increase my testosterone to no avail, and now my GP thinks it's potentially a mental issue rather than a physical one. What are your thoughts on sex therapy, and do you think it helps to restore libido?
2: Okay, so if you've if the belief was that the low sex drive was because of low testosterone and the testosterone was replaced mm. and the sex drive didn't go up, then it's not a hormonal problem. Okay, maybe there is a psychological component to that. There's lots of reasons that people might want to uh, or might not feel sexual. Say, for example. If you've had a really bad experiences on the apps or you've been to clubs and you've had bad experiences where you might have made a move on somebody and you got rejected in a way that made you feel really horrible, then suddenly that whole sex thing could become a bit scary. And I wouldn't say necessarily sex therapy, but finding a therapist that you feel comfortable with will make a massive difference somebody that you can sit down and talk with and slowly unpack this stuff it's probably not going to happen in two or three sessions it it might evolve over a number of sessions where you slowly just peel away the layers of the onion and look at you know do you have anxiety around certain situations or you know, do you have body dysmorphia and that you don't feel that your body is sexy or, or you know, there's lots of different things. Now, the trick with a really good therapist is finding somebody that you feel safe with to have those conversations with. Here in Melbourne, we have a number of sex therapists. And I certainly know that one of the more prominent ones who advertises a lot I don't send my gay patients in that direction because the gay patients I've sent have not gotten a good experience. So they might be an excellent sex therapist for heterosexual people, but if they don't understand a lot of the gay stuff, it's tricky. So I would certainly look for a queer or at the very least queer friendly and understanding therapist to start the conversation with. But I don't necessarily think it has to be sex therapy per se. I think Anyone that you can slowly unpack and talk with will make a big, big difference.
4: Cool. And so our next question comes from another doctor, and it reads, as a health professional myself, how would Dr. George approach a situation where an older patient assumes your sexuality? For example, I have patients in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who often mention that I must have a lovely wife. I find it hard to navigate as I don't want to ruin my rapport with them, but I also don't want to lie. Um, Fellow doc, help! (laughs) Well, look—you have to look at
2: every situation as it shows up. Some mm. some fights are worth fighting; some are. Like I've got a, a couple of old of my veteran affairs patients or faggot, ra ra ra. Mm-hmm. I just give them the best service that they so rightly deserve, and then get them the hell out. You you become the artful dodger. But for the love of God, if you haven't worked out that I'm a big <laughs> old screamer, then you are freaking blind <laughs> and deaf, and you've yeah. never been on YouTube. So. <laughs> Like, as a doctor, I forward load this. So if anybody searches my name, if they haven't worked out within two Google searches that I'm a big, fat old faggot, (laughs) then that's fine. And I do that on purpose because – and I train doctors in this because – Guess what? If people don't like going to see gay doctors, they don't come to see me because yeah. I am the gay doctor.
3: And it sort of goes back to what you were saying before about sex therapists of finding the right one, I guess. So, by you putting that information out there, it's making, meaning that people can sort of find you if, they, if, if you're the right person for them.
2: Mm. And it's little things, it's little pebbles that you throw in the water. Say, for example, when I got beaten up for putting a gay marriage bollard art up, right? That actually got press. And as a result of that, a number of people who were assaulted or who were treated poorly because of the gay marriage debate came and saw me. And, mm. you know, in the old parlance, you know, in the, in the, in the old gay days, it was, like, it was called dropping a pin where you drop a pin and see if they picked it up. Like, do you go to the bars or have you ever been to the baths? Mm-hmm. You know, if, they, if somebody goes, Oh, yeah, I love going swimming at the, so kill the baths, then you know mm-hmm. they're not going wet. You know? Mm-hmm. you know, on my wall at work, there is a photo of me with panty bliss.
3: Yeah. Maybe and they think that's idiot your lovely asked wife. asked me
2: whether that was my wife. <laughs> oh my gosh, they did. I like, <laughs> <laughs> they did. They asked me if this was my wife, and I was like, going, we got to fix your cataracts, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so,
1: yeah.
3: Maybe that could um, replace the eye test, you know, reading the letters off the wall.
2: Oh, my God, yes. Can you spot a drag queen from 60 feet? Yeah. Um, but what I would say, though, is don't lie. Yeah. Just because somebody asks a question doesn't mean you have to answer it. But don't lie, because if you lie to a patient, they will always remember that. And mm-hmm. I learned that in psychiatry early, that... Sometimes you'll say little fibs to get people out of the room, but the minute somebody thinks that you've deceived them, they will not never trust you again. So just say, oh, I I prefer to keep home at home and work at work. It just works better for me that way, and it doesn't get complicated. Mm
3: -hmm. Uh, Now, this question is from one of our trans listeners. They ask, uh, there's an abundance of information about PrEP for gay men, but what do we know about the effects of PrEP for intersex and trans men? Uh, Is there a difference?
2: There is. There is actually a difference. So the main differences when it comes to prep for the trans community is the first thing is that intermittent prep is not recommended. So prep on the barn, two one one, whatever you want to call it, that is not the recommended regime for people who are trans, whether they be male to female or female to male. That's part one. Okay. Part two is initiating and stopping the medications. So if you are a trans man and you still have front hole sex then when you start prep you need to have 7 days worth of medication inside the body before you will have an effective dose. Because you need to have the medicine where it needs to be the most so it needs to be concentrated in the cervix. Okay. If if a trans man still has the um, uterus and the cervix, if they've not had a hysterectomy, then we need to make sure that there's a high enough concentration in the cervical mucus. Okay. Now, on the other side of that, if you are a trans female, the hormones, the feminizing hormones may lead to a lower amount of concentration of PrEP within the body and within the body tissues. So again, this is why it's important that you must be taking the tablet daily and you need the seven days of medication before you start to have an effective dose. For all trans people, if you wish to stop PrEP, you need to take it for 28 days after your last potential exposure to HIV before you cease taking the medicine.
3: Oh I had no idea that there was
4: a difference. None either. Yeah,
2: it's 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 an interesting
4: one. Yeah. All So for our last listener question for today, it reads, um, Hi, Dr. George. I went through a stressful period with work, social isolation during COVID, and moving to a new city. I've ended up leaning on the bottle pretty hard, and I now have up to 50 standard drinks a week. Um, I've managed to stop to save my body as well as my mind and my bank account. But I'm wondering what the implications of short-term binging, so around three months, um, would be, and what are some things that I can do to get my body and organs back into balance? And is there any risk to my body by drinking so much and then stopping abruptly? Or does that only apply to long-term alcoholics?
2: Okay, so we've got a few things in there. So, a couple
4: of things.
2: <laughs> one or two little things. Yeah. Um, so the current guidelines for alcohol consumption is uh, two to three standard drinks, mm. three to four days a week. So a standard drink is a uh, a midi of beer. A I think it's 120 mils of wine is a standard drink and 30 mils of spirits is a standard drink. As you know, a COVID hand pour is probably a little bit more generous than what you might get at the pub.
0: Mm.
2: People, we, we know that the um, consumption of alcohol above, say, four standard drinks in a session could be considered hazardous or harmful and certainly more than six or eight can cause a lot of harm it's beyond just like oh your liver is going to get pissed off which which could happen but also alcohol is a disinhibiting agent so you could um, make some very poor decisions you could have a fight or an argument with somebody when you're a bit pissed or walk out in front of a tram because you're distracted So I think a lot of violence and stuff like that can also be perpetuated with alcohol as well. So Mm. be aware that it's not just about the biological changes within the body. People who consume large amounts of alcohol over a, a longish period of time, and three months would be enough to get that level inside your body, if you notice that you're having to consume alcohol in the morning to avoid withdrawal, so people who are withdrawing from alcohol sweat and they feel jittery and they feel nervous and they feel agitated. And at the very extreme end, people can have seizures as well. Oh, wow. To actually get them off that, you can slowly taper the dose down but sometimes if they're really consuming high levels of alcohol then they need other drugs in on board like valium or something like that to protect them against the seizures that can happen when you with suddenly withdraw alcohol
3: i wow. feel like i feel like there's a, a big difference there between 3 to 4 standard drinks and having to have a drink in the morning hmm. what would you say like i mean i know myself and a lot of my friends if you were having say a bottle of wine every second or third night that that's to me seems like a more common amount mm. than the three to four standard drinks or the, the having to have a drink as soon as you get up in the morning. Is that a risky yeah. amount of drinking?
2: Um, well, a bottle of wine is seven standard drinks. Um, so if you're consuming, like if you and like a lot of people say, oh, my partner and I will share a bottle of wine over dinner. So that's, you know, I read about three and a half standard drinks per person, mm. but often they'll have two bottles of wine. Mm. And don't forget that they'll have a beer when they get home from work and then they have wine with dinner and then they might have a scotch afterwards. So depending on how you've socially enabled it or set it up will depend on how much you consume. Again, why is the person drinking? Are they drinking because they're bored? Are they drinking because they are stressed? Are they drinking because they're anxious? Mm. If somebody just enjoys drinking and they do a lot of it because they like it, that's one thing. But if you're drinking because you hate your partner and you don't want to be in the house with them and you're feeling stuck with them, then that's two very different things. And so that would involve two very different solutions Mm. because removing the alcohol isn't going to remove the domestic violence. Now, another interesting thing has come from lockdown is that people's drinking patterns change during lockdown as well. There are some people who've, brought their tolerance to alcohol has either gone up or gone down as a result of the lockdown. And so when the lockdown was released, they went back to their normal drinking habits and suddenly they were getting really big effects. High levels of alcohol consumption, we know that around about 10 to 20% of people will get changes in their liver called fatty liver disease of those people with fatty liver disease, about 10 to 20% of those people could lead to what's called alcoholic hepatitis, which is where there's changes in the liver. And think about it. If you stress out a liver that's designed to break down the alcohol Mm. and it's not functioning as well, then you won't break down alcohol as well either. So- I feel like I've got it in a really big circle, but I I suppose...
3: (laughs) No, it is interesting, though, because I'm listening to these statistics and I'm saying, well, yeah, like, uh, during lockdown, my my partner and I have, you know, quite often been having a beer when we get home or when he finishes work and I'm working from home. Then, you know, Mm. a couple of bottles of wine with dinner and then perhaps a scotch and stuff afterwards. Mm. And it is probably, Mm. you know, a couple of times a week that we're doing that. Mm. And and so it's just, yeah, it's interesting to hear you saying that. I mean, I don't think we're doing it because of... um, any emotional need to, to escape from each other, but maybe more because we would normally be going out and, and perhaps the drinks yeah. would be broken up a bit more when we're going out because there's, you know, chatting to people and that sort of stuff that when we're sitting at home watching the crown, it's yeah, easier yeah. to just pour another glass.
2: And well, that's the thing. well, the, the bottle's already open, so we yeah. may as well finish it. Yeah. yeah. If you're drinking because it's enjoyable and social and it's not causing you any problems, then good luck to you. But, I, I've met people who make an economic decision that I, I remember a chap telling me very, very sincerely, um, this was at the Terminus Hotel back in Brisbane at the day, and we were hanging out back, and he goes, I drink wine because drop for drop, dollar for dollar, there's more alcohol in the wine, and I can get more piss for less buck.
3: Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's an issue. And I
2: was like going, wow, you know, mm. you're, you're choosing purely out of economics because you want to get a level of intoxication at the cheapest amount that you can. And that, to me, sounds problematic. For sure. You will see problems emerging if you are starting to get withdrawals in the morning. If you're waking up needing alcohol to feel functional, then that's a problem. And this is why there are great places like Headspace or just look up, do a Google search for drug and alcohol services wherever you are, and they can guide you through this process because there's, there's treatments that can help you with cravings for alcohol. There's treatments that can help you with underlying issues that's leading to the alcohol consumption like depression or anxiety. And then there's treatments available for uh, the acute withdrawals if they're there. So it's mm. really, is the alcohol the problem or is it a symptom of another problem? So that's that's worthy Definitely. of teasing out.
3: Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, thank you, Dr George, uh, for joining us for the show and for the after show. It's been a treat yes, as always. It's fascinating to listen
2: yes. to. Yeah. Now, do I just pick a key out of the bowl or how
3: does <laughs> it work? <laughs> uh, we'll hopefully be catching up with you again soon, but uh, in yes. the meantime, yes. keep your hands clean, keep your mask on and stay safe.
2: I dare. I'm totally mask for mask and hand sanny for, for hand sanity. <laughs> so, yeah, look after you guys. Uh, Thanks, look darling. Look after anybody who's listening. Look thank after you, yourself. darling. Bye. Bye.
3: Yeah.
5: Founded in 2005, Vixen Collective is the only peer-run sex worker organisation in Victoria. The collective promotes the cultural, legal and civil rights of all sex workers and is run entirely by sex workers, volunteering the time and energy. To chat to us about the work of the collective and their experience as a queer sex worker is Dylan O'Hara. Thanks so much for joining us, Dylan.
3: Hi there. (laughs) Thanks for joining us, Dylan. So could you start firstly by explaining to us the value in Vixen Collective being peer-run?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So... And maybe it's important to just clarify what we mean by peer run in case, um, in case anybody listening isn't familiar. Uh, so yeah. in a sex work context specifically, when we say peer run or actually more accurately with fix and peer, peer only, because it's 100% peer, what we mean is that everybody involved, as you said, is a, is a sex worker, past or present. That also means that nobody is a manager or operator or owner of a sex work business. Nobody's a driver, a cleaner, you know, any other kind of third party or ancillary worker, a partner of a sex worker, a family member, an ally. No one like that. It's only sex workers. And that's a really fundamental principle in, you know, sex worker organizing. Um, mm. And that's because it's in recognition of the fact that, um, you know, sex workers are, we're experts in our own lives. Um, yep. We know we know the most about about sex work and our experiences of it and we don't we don't need you know other people to interpret that for us or manage it for us it's a nothing nothing about us uh, without us principle
5: and sex work is surprisingly common in the lgbt community and the lines between straight and kind of queer sex can sometimes be blurred in that space have you found that your work has allowed you to explore your own queerness
6: um, I might just start by saying that I don't know if it's that surprising that it's that common. Yeah, I don't know if um, it's surprising. Yeah. <laughs> it's not surprising to me. Oh. <laughs> you know, a lot of queer and trans people I know, um, you know, have a a, have, have a sex work history or maybe a sex work present. Many, many sex workers are queer, trans and gender diverse, um, and that's really yeah. been true for a long time. Um, uh, sex workers are really at the heart of queer community. And I think in Australia you can really see that in you know, in lots of different ways, in particular, if you look at, you know, the history of community response to, say, the HIV AIDS crisis, queer and trans um, sex workers were were really centrally involved in that. Yeah. But I mean, in terms of my own experiences of that, I guess that the way in which uh, the way in which sex work and queerness, um, I guess, intersect for me is maybe less about the work itself and, and more about, yeah, my experiences of, of queer community and sex worker community. I know personally, I'm happiest when I'm with A bunch of other sex workers um or a bunch of other queer and trans people and when it's you know when it's both that's um that's extra great so (laughs) yeah um
5: and i know like uh, an issue that you'd face um is all the stigma that negatively impacts um experiences of sex workers and uh, some of the discrimination that comes from within like the queer community itself like why do you think that is
6: i mean i guess first and foremost queer queer people are you know, are people obviously, and are part of. You, yeah. heard, you heard it here, um, <laughs> but you know, queer people are part of. You know, we're part of the societies that we live in, um, mm-hmm. and you know, we live in a profoundly, you know, a profoundly homophobic society that you know has a lot of stigma towards sex workers. So, I don't think you know, in the same way that there is, you know, there are a lot of problems with uh, with racism and classism and drug shaming and transphobia or things like that within parts of the queer community, I think unfortunately it's the case that those issues that have to be responded to mm. are in attitudes to sex workers as well. Um, well, speaking about
3: people's attitudes, I imagine that the that female identifying sex workers continue to be exposed to high levels of misogyny. Um, do you think that's correct? And if so, do you think there's a correlation between sexism and, and sex worker stigma?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think that stigma against sex workers or the stigma that sex workers experience um, is, you know, one of its core components is misogyny. I think that's what it's constructed out of, mm. and I think that's true even when we're talking about that stigma being, you know, directed towards people who are not women as well, because you know, if we if we use the if we use the uh, kind of Margaret St James idea of whore stigma, which is this kind of it's the kind of the thesis that whore stigma is directed at. At all women, and arguably, um, you know, other people as well. However, there is a there is a literal a literal whore, you know, at the centre of it who is hurt by it the most, and that's and that's sex workers. You know, it's part of a whole set of patriarchal and misogynistic ideas mm-hmm. about sex, about women, about women's bodies, mm-hmm. uh, about femininity. Um, and you know, like I'm, I'm sure there's lots of conversations to be had about how misogyny impacts, for example, you know, feminine gay men as well. Um, like I think oh, totally. you know, there's lots of stuff to say about that too. So it's, I think misogyny, you know, misogyny hurts uh, a lot of different people, but I think that's the correlation is that it's, it's rooted in misogyny. And yeah, I think we can acknowledge that while also acknowledging that sex workers are not only women, you know, mm. there are lots of men who are sex workers or also non-binary people who are sex workers. Um, But I think misogyny and also trans misogyny specifically Mm -hmm. um, is is definitely Mm -hmm. something that plays into... So if everyone could just stop being misogynist, that'd be great. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be
5: helpful. (laughs) Um, In what ways do you think um, sex work is currently stigmatised by the government and police and, I guess, just the justice system in general in Australia?
6: Um, I mean, so if if you forgive me for focusing on Victoria... um, Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, no, ...if that's okay, then I think what I would say is that in Victoria we, you know the way that sex work is regulated in Victoria is um, under a system called licensing, which means Mm -hmm. that you have a two-tiered sex industry, basically. Licensing produces a compliant part of the industry where there are lots and lots and lots of very complicated rules that are very intrusive and in and of themselves discriminatory and two and stigmatizing of sex workers. And then you also have a lot of people who are forced to work non-compliantly who aren't able to comply with those requirements, and so they're then in this non-compliant part of the industry. You know, one there's, there's many examples. One example would be that sex workers in Victoria currently are required to undergo what essentially amounts to mandatory sexual health testing every three months. Now, that's not based in any evidence. It doesn't do anything useful. It's, it's also really expensive in terms of the costs of running that. And it's based in basically this, you know, really, really harmful and antiquated idea of sex workers as vectors of disease, as, as a kind of a threat to the rest of the public who need to be sort of contained and, and who need to be, you know, who need to be regulated in this kind of paternalistic way for our own good. Mm. Yeah, that, that sex workers require this extra level of state intervention, you know, like this might involve or certainly in the past has involved things like you know, internal examinations and things like it's quite intrusive. Yeah, right. And if you don't do it, then it has implications for your ability to work or at least to work compliantly, mm. you know, and that's tied into the fact that we still have HIV criminalization for, um, for sex workers in Victoria. Yeah.
3: So, so obviously, because of this, you're fighting for the full decriminalisation of sex work in Victoria. The decriminalisation model is upheld as being the best practice for the health and safety of sex workers by organisations, including the UN and uh, the World Health Organisation, and and a lot of you know big players. Um, could you give us a sense of what decriminalisation looks like and what would change if it was successfully passed?
6: Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, yeah, as you said, um, it's yeah, it's It's a model that is uh, recognised as best practice by an increasingly very, very long list of um, different organisations nationally and and globally, Uh, including as well, um, you know, sex worker organisations. You know, sex worker organisations overwhelmingly support this. This is what sex workers are calling for. So in terms of what decriminalisation looks like, in a general sense, the beauty of decriminalisation is it's really simple. So it just means that you are removing or repealing criminal and any other laws that are specific to sex work, you're taking them away, and then sex work is regulated by other existing laws that apply to other kinds of work. And it means that you no longer have pieces of legislation that single out sex workers in that way. Um, And, you know, there's still the ability to respond to different kinds of things that need to be responded to in people's workplaces or in people's work. Um, There's still the ability to respond to You know, issues that, you know, involving criminal activity or anything, because those things are already in existing criminal codes. So it's just about kind of bringing sex work into the same place as other kinds of work. And fundamentally, the value of decriminalization as well is that it recognizes sex work as work and sex workers as workers and puts us within a, you know, a workers' rights space rather than a kind of moral panic, you know, Mm. space. And I mean, (laughs) the current laws that we have in Victoria are harmful to sex workers not only in carrying out our work impacting our you know our safety strategies, our ability to work in the ways that are safest and most effective for us and that we, you know, want to work in. But the licensing system also impacts sex workers really negatively in lots of parts of their lives. And it can have implications that follow people throughout their whole lives or into really different parts of their lives. Removing that and replacing it with a model that, you know, simply treats sex work as work, like other kinds of work has an immediate positive effect by removing all those negative things, but I think it also it's also the place where you can then start to, it doesn't fix stigma overnight, but you can actually then start to work on it. Mm. And, you know, it also allows a lot of room for sex workers to look at things like how they want to organize in their workplaces or, you know, things like that, yeah. that are now mm. very difficult. It's
3: funny, I feel like when I have conversations with people that are sort of centre-left about this, they also they come up with, and, mm. and, and I'm not uh, by any means supporting what they're saying, this uh, argument of it's also a logistical thing that like, you know, there's so much that has to change, it's a really long-term thing and that sort of stuff. But really, when you look at things, uh, as stupid as it sounds, things like Uber, where the government was able to so quickly change and transform an industry and make it legal and operatable and all that sort of stuff, it's not really about that, is it? It's not about the logistics of changing the laws and that sort of thing. It's about the stigma and the, and not wanting to do
6: that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if governments want to change laws, they can. Yeah. So you know, it's not. It's you know, that's that's what one of the things they do. So it's certainly not. I don't think it's that it's that difficult. It, you know, in Victoria, the problem is that because there's this this regime of licensing, which you know was was introduced to control sex work or prostitution was the language at the time in the original legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it's just this entire infrastructure of regulating, managing, surveilling, monitoring sex workers, where you have police as a key, you know, a key part of regulation and enforcement. You also have different parts of government. Um, it just means that there's a lot to take away. It's, it's not just one piece of, you know, it's the Sex Work Act. It's the Sex Work Regulations. It's its some stuff in the Public Health and Wellbeing Act. There's some issues in the Equal Opportunities Act. There's lots of different things that all have to be. Um, so, you know, sure. That, that makes it a bit, a bit labor intensive, but mm. yeah, I would, I would agree. I think it's, you know, it's very possible to get it done. And I think, you know, I think, I think we will get it done. And right. it's, you know, certainly it's true. I've heard from workers in other jurisdictions that Victoria is one of the most complex places to work, partly because people often don't know that they're mm. breaking a law. You know, that happens quite often right. that somebody will believe that they're working compliantly and they and, and it's just the the laws are really confusing and really complex.
1: Yeah. I
6: think I mean I think it's also worth noting that police are involved in Victoria under the laws. Um it's it's not the case that people aren't running the risk of being caught by police or interacting with police in Victoria, particularly street based sex work. Um street based sex work is, is completely criminalized in the Victorian system at the moment. And so um street based sex workers in many ways bear the brunt of police targeting and of also kind of wider social stigma. Mm -hmm. One of the key things decriminalisation does is it removes police from an enforcement and regulation role in relation to sex workers. It takes them out of that role. Um, you know, police shouldn't be involved in in public health in that way.
3: Now, stepping away from how the law views sex work and more, I guess, how society does, um, sex work is recognised as a valid profession all over the world. But often it's seen, you know, there's this narrative that people partake in it only when they have no other options, that it's sort of this destitute kind of last option. Um, Is there space to seek pleasure and satisfaction from the
6: work as well? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, sex workers like like everyone else are you know are navigating you know life under capitalism. People have to work, mm. except maybe the you know the independently wealthy. Um, most people most people have to work, and so if you have to work, you have to find a way to to navigate that and to make choices. You know, maybe sometimes those choices are more constrained, but you know, everybody is everybody is making is making the choices that they're able to make. So yeah, I think the sort of no options versus sort of, um, you know, empowered, I love my job sort of that. Yeah. I, I I don't find that that's a very helpful kind of dichotomy. I think that, um, many sex workers like have different feelings about their work at different times and different experiences with it. Like anybody else, I know for myself that I've, you know, had many different kinds of feelings Mm. about sex work. I think that in terms of this, you know, pleasure and satisfaction, I mean, again, Being a sex worker, being involved in sex worker organizing and activism, being in sex worker community spaces is a huge source of pleasure and satisfaction to me all the time because I love sex Mm. workers and I love the you know, the the strength and the solidarity and the, the wit and the scrappiness and all of the things that, that sex workers bring to the table. So, yeah. yeah.
3: Now, unfortunately, we can't get through one conversation without having to mention COVID um, because it is just controlling everyone's life at the moment. So I'm keen to know, in what ways does co- the COVID pandemic affected how sex workers are able to make a living at the moment?
6: So COVID nineteen has had a absolutely just a, a profound and unprecedented impact on sex workers in Australia and in, in Victoria. Absolutely, um, so many sex workers in you know in Australia are not are still not able to to do sex work at the moment. Depending on which part of the country they're in, um, a lot of people at this point have been going with you know without access to their regular income for a really long time you know, many sex workers will have lost multiple kinds of income, you know, if people also had other kinds of work, perhaps, like casual work that's been impacted, for example, in addition to sex work. A lot of sex workers haven't been able to and still aren't able to access, you know, government or federal government, you know, financial support, particularly, um, you know, some of the requirements around job keeper and job seeker, some of those can be challenging for sex workers. But there are also sex workers who, um, due to, you know, due to visa status and things like that, Um, simply aren't eligible for those kinds of financial safety nets that, you know, the government has provided. Um, And so I think that for, you know, for for sex workers who are also queer and or trans, I think that, you know, like I'm aware of just in my own personal life, I'm aware of a number of people who have ended up needing to go and stay with family or things like that, Mm. you know, maybe their family is also transphobic and doesn't know they're a sex worker or, you know, so, Mm. you know, I think that in Victoria in general, obviously we're seeing this um, really aggressive policing approach. Um, of COVID restrictions. And so with sex workers, as with, as with the broader, you know, the broader community, um, I think we obviously know that people who are already, you know, subject to racial profiling and increased police targeting are also Hmm. experiencing a higher level of COVID related policing. And, you know, we are seeing increased policing of sex workers specifically um, using, using the public health restrictions. So it's also a, yeah, it's, it's a kind of perfect storm of, you know, pro- profoundly, uh, profoundly, you know, impactful um, public health crisis that is, um, that is hurting so many people along with, um, yeah, the stigma and discrimination that sex workers are already dealing with and, the, you know, the failures of the licensing system that in no way provides any support poor sex workers and is further yeah, further exacerbating the issues stemming directly from the pandemic. So, yeah, I mean, many sex workers in Victoria are having a very difficult time.
5: Dylan, thank you so much for discussing your experience. It's been so fascinating. Yeah, it's been fantastic. So good. Um, how can people support the work of The Collective?
6: So um, the best way that people could support um, Vixen Collective at the moment would be to donate if they have cash or if they don't to to promote the emergency support fund for sex workers in Australia. Um, which is a a fund where every, every dollar donated goes directly to sex workers in need. And basically the fund is what's, what is there is distributed each week to sex workers in crisis. Each week we, you know, we start, we start again, and scrambled to get <laughs> to get enough money in the fund. So we've actually just launched a new fund um, and this fund is, is specifically aimed at sex workers in parts of Australia where it's, uh, you know, where they're being particularly impacted by COVID-19 and COVID-19 restrictions and are, less, are unable to work or is able to work and so... You know, at the moment, that means Victoria and the ACT in particular. So, um, yes, that's how people can help. Um, Fantastic. Initiative. No donation is too small. And uh, sh- just sharing it is helpful as well.
5: Awesome. Brilliant. Great. Thanks so Dylan, much, Dylan, thank you so much for joining us. No
6: problem. Us. Thank you very much.
5: Welcome to the gays are revelting. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We put
1: the G in LGBTQIA+, and we're here to help you pee the best
5: G-sorry. <laughs> oh, so it's fine you doing it. <laughs> we put the G in LGBTQIA+.
3: In a nutshell, for anyone that uh, hasn't heard about it, uh, Canberra has decided to make lead wiggle. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Please leave that in
6: You're hot right now legal.
3: <laughs> To make weed legal, legal. Oh my god Do you know the population of California is 39.4 million
5: hmm.
3: The population of Australia is only 24 million I
5: don't
3: know. So <laughs> <man>. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger was in charge of 14 million more people Than the Prime Minister of Australia <laughs> um, But you weren't arrested that year hmm. What do you think they like made the, the, the decision for them to rest. Mm. Sorry, what do you think they decided? Why do you, <laughs> <laughs> uh, given your given you right, uh, mostly in your, oh, Fuck, I'm way too cooked to be doing this. Aren't I you don't know, you don't
1: know, do you want some more coke? Zero, yeah, I do. Melbourne, Canberra, Cairns, Cairns, <laughs> Cairns, Brisbane, Cairns, you know, yeah, I don't, I honestly believe that people
4: No, that's such a stupid thing to say. Sorry, okay. And we also have uh, the Rainbow Rebellion's Ali Hong on... T- uh, oh. Hong. Why do I keep thinking Hong? God damn it. Because you're racist. <laughs> 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 this week, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival
1: has just started. Yes, it has. Uh, exciting time of year. And we have uh, Spiro Econopo- Econon- Economopolis. And I mean, did get a bit, a
3: bit of flack f- f- from people. Not necessarily penetrative... 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 Penet... Not... Peter's you know what I'm in. saying
1: Take a breath Take a breath Thank you A lot of people are aware of my belief in That aliens exist And yeah. that perhaps they built the pyramids And maybe we should be worshipping Some sort of alien deity mm-hmm. Sure I'm rapping right now My flow is just so fresh
5: <laughs> You do <laughs> Rhyme fresh Quick so- And yeah. it was because he Was trying to flip it on the head Flip it Flip um, gay people's image on its head because listen to the gays are revolting wherever you get your delicious boy. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's not the that line. Um, are you concerned about governments pushing through this kind of discriminant? Are you concerned with? Are you concerned with? Sorry. Are you Are you concerned about governments pushing through this kind of discriminatory legislation? I've masturbated to a video of someone getting fucked in a window.
5: So you guys just- <laughs> God, we're fake. <laughs> like, that was that came too easily. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>